Welcome to episode 22 of the Zach Kuhn Show. Here we go. Seymour Stein, one of the most legendary A&R executives of all time, he created Sire Records. He signed acts like Madonna, the Talking Heads, the Ramones. He, he's got this great quote about A&R, which is, A&R is this very French way of saying people and songs. I don't know, I, 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 I just like that. Anyway, that brings me to my guest today. Stephanie Wright is the Senior VP of A&R at Universal Nashville. She's been with the company for over 20 years, and in her amazing career, she's signed acts like Casey Musgraves, Sam Hunt, Maddie and Tay, and so many more. This is a really fun episode. Stephanie has been heavily involved with some of the most iconic albums and artists of the 21st century, and hearing about her rise in the industry and some behind-the-scenes stories is amazing. Quick side note, there's a little construction that happens in this episode that you can hear, but that just makes it more fun, lets you know that this was recorded live. It's a live podcast recording. Anything can happen, and that's it. That, that's all I'm going to say. Here we go. Episode 22, Stephanie Wright. She's a total badass. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Let's dive in. What surprised me more than anything was how many changes have gone on in the Nashville airport. I was shocked. Like, just in the amount of time we haven't been traveling, and we travel quite a bit. I, I was like, there's a whole new area with a whole new security thing. And I thought, oh my God, where are they leading us to? It was shocking. The floors changed, obviously that's been you know. B- No more BNA carpet. I bought my BNA carpet doormat. <laughs> <laughs> which I'm waiting to come in the mail. I'm so excited for it. Are you gonna frame it and put it on your wall? No, I'm gonna use it. I'm gonna step okay. on it and reminisce. And every time I come, I'll, I'll, I'll tag. I don't okay. know. <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, that's what you pick to love about Nashville airport, but whatever. I know, we literally, we flew out. Everything was still down on the car, the, the floor. We fly back and I'm like, Brad and I both looked down and I'm like, oh my God, where'd this come from? It's, it wasn't here before. Yep, so. All the changes. Well, I'm, excited. I'm excited to see it for the first time. So I want to dive right in. Okay, let's do it. Right, right in the middle. Okay, how do you sign Casey Musgraves? <laughs> wow, that is jumping right in. You know what, when I found out about her, I was actually not technically a creative in the sense of, I was in the a department, but I wasn't like just a creative a person. I was doing uh, recording admin mainly. and one of my good friends worked at Warner Chapel and she had come to meet with me because I was, you know, trying to get people to be interested in playing me songs and whatever. And she said, Oh my gosh, we signed this girl and she's amazing. Here's some of her stuff. And I was like, Oh my God. And I thought about it, thought about it. And there was just this burning feeling. So I reached back out to her and I said, Hey, can I get her phone number? I just want to talk to her. And I remember I just, cold called her one night and I said, I know you don't know me and I work over at Universal, but I heard some stuff of yours today and I'd really like to just see if you'd like to go do lunch or maybe talk. And at this point she played a couple shows. So I think that there was some people starting to, you know, pay attention. Um, Was it the voice or the songwriting or what drew you into it? Uh, Really more her voice because she just, she has such a pure vocal and I heard it and I was like, this is so different and she just sounds so different than a lot of the other things that, you know, we hear through demos and whatnot. Um, And I remember we met at uh, Copper Kettle, which was, is now gone, but it was up um, on first or whatever up there, I think by Pinewood Social. And it was just, it was a weird feeling. Like I remember sitting across from her and we were talking about buying her grandmother these red cabinets that, that to her would, would be success if she had enough money to do that. And then we talked about hair products and typical, I don't know, girl things, um, just sort of to break the ice. And I said, well, what do you see things looking like for you in, in the next five years? And I, I don't even know that I knew what questions to ask, but I knew the moment I was sitting across from her, something special was there. Like it's that intangible. If you put it down on paper, you can't list this thing. But the more I talked to her and listen to her and her stories and her landlord and the way she was, you know, and I, I, so I kept up with her for a little while. And then I finally got the nerve and went into my boss who is Brian. Right. And I said, I really think that we need to bring her in here and everybody needs to talk to her. Um, she was really intrigued too, I think, because at the time we had lost highway 
and when we originally signed her, she was sort of uh, Mercury and Lost Highway, and it was it was enough left of center. I knew it would be intriguing for Luke Lewis, who was our boss at the time. I knew that he would be like, this is amazing. Um, it still took a couple of years, longer than I wanted it to, but um, we eventually snagged that in our building, and forever, forever thankful for that, because it changed things for me drastically, and, and I think for her too. Absolutely. So I remember talking with someone who was peripherally involved when mm -hmm. Golden Hour came out, and it had just come out, and that person had said, oh, I wish she had stuck country. This record's never going to work. And then fast forward to the Grammys and everything, that same person came to me and said, I told you it was going to work the whole time. And I was like, no, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> but when that record was turned in, when you heard it for the first time, were you, were you thrilled? Were you nervous? Did you, like, what, what was the reaction around the office when that record first got turned in? No, when I wasn't, I wasn't surprised. She had been on tour with George Strait, who we typically go out and see every one of his shows because it's not very often that he tours, but she was opening up for him in, in Vegas. And I, I had gone back to just hang with her a little bit after she performed. And she was kind of talking about the idea of keeping some of the um, storytelling, not keeping some of it, but her storytelling the way it is, and then being a little bit more progressive and adding different sounds and instrumentation to, um, you know, what her musical bed would be. And she said, what do you think fans will think of that? What do you think the, the music community will think of that? Like all of those things. So I kind of knew that those wheels were turning in her head anyway. And I said, I think that your true fans are going to follow you no matter what you do. And I think you might be surprised at how many more fans, you know, get brought into that just because, you know, it, having different types of um, sounds and music beds, I think brings in a different group of uh, more, more to the masses, so to speak. And they called us over once she'd sort of finished and there was a group of us that went over to listen to the project. And of course I was just sitting there in heaven beaming from ear to ear. Um, Cause it had all of those things. It still had the great, you know, the stream of conscious and the, the, the way she writes things, but it, but it had some unique things. And, and we sort of left there. And I remember uh, Daniel Tashin saying, so that's going to get a Grammy, right? And I was like, of course it is. <laughs> of course. No, no, no problem. But I also knew that it would be met with some of that back and forth because those albums prior to that were super traditional and very sort of, I don't know, it had their unique thing to it. But but this was definitely going to be different for fans that were going to hear this and, and the music community in general. Absolutely. And I think we, we all, the thing about Casey is we all uh, aren't surprised because whatever she brings to the table, we're just like, it's uniquely her and we just embrace it and run with it. Cause her gut check on all of that is amazing. And it is continued to prove, you know, her right, all of us, right. But that that's the, you know, she needs to follow her gut and do what she does. And we just need, we're here to support all of that and just magnify it. At, like er, early on with an artist, not, not even anyone specific, but do, do they kind of have to prove that the, um, the ability to let the label kind of run with their creative direction? Like is when, when they have a smash like that, all of a sudden do you say, okay, you know, we're gonna back off even more and we're gonna just like, we trust you now to follow your gut? Well, I think we, from the get go, you try to sign things that are unique enough that if they've already come to you to the table with their artistry and these songs or the way things sound, there's gotta be something uniquely different about it in order for you to want to have it be a part of your, your roster. So you have to have a little bit of trust there up front. Um, and we typically try to sign things that don't step on other things um, that we already have because we cherish all of the artists that we have and we want to make sure they have their own lane and we're not, you know, double dipping, so to speak. But I do think that there is something to be said for having, um, for, for precedence of turning stuff in, having it be proven by the, the masses or whatever the acclaim is, and then going, okay, obviously she's got, she, he, whoever has, has their thing and it's been proven to work. Let's not fix something that's not broken. Um, one of the things that I, I've learned, and I think Brian would speak to this as well, our first boss, Luke Lewis, and he always, um, he was really good at showing us that it was important to let the artists um, 
really dive into who they are and be uniquely them um, almost to the point where they could hang themselves because they could go so far out on a ledge. And, and our job is to, to be there and say, you can do it this way, but if you might end up having this or this or this happen, and that might not be the outcome you want, you, you can do it and we trust you to do it. That's why you're here, but it may not be exactly what you want the outcome to be. And our job is to let you know that this could be an epic fail if you want to push this hard or, you know, I know you're passionate about this, but it could, it could, it could turn out shit, <laughs> but he, but, but there is something to be said for that. I and mean, obviously we don't interfere with what Casey's ideas are. Um, cause she's proven over and over again that she can do it. By herself. Absolutely. So tip, absolutely. So, okay. So typically, so you called up Casey, you were chasing her down. Typically are artists coming to you or are you discovering them and chasing them down? How, how do you find artists typically to work with or is it totally random every time? Well, I think it's changed a lot over the last 10 to 15 years because of social media. So when I started back in the a &R department 22 years ago, I, you know, we were still getting submissions or there were appointments being made by attorneys or managers or publishers to come in and have an artist play for you. But, you know, I would even say when when we signed Casey at that point, or even when I signed Sam, I, you know, I went to a writer's round and heard him. I'd heard a couple of things demo wise um, before that, but I'd heard him that night and I left there going, oh my God, we have to snatch this up quick because this is, people are going to want to sign this. Um, the last couple of years, it's become more of a new artist feeding frenzy as far as all the labels go, I think. So, you know, once one artist gets, I don't know, discovered or pitched, it feels like everybody's aware of it immediately. And there's five deals on the table. And all of a sudden it's like, like I said, a feeding frenzy to see who and where it fits best and who wins out. So it's definitely the pace of that has definitely changed um, where it used to be. And, you know, we pay attention to all the streaming services now. So, streaming services or social media platforms to see who's got numbers, if there's something bubbling, if it's something that's just of the moment or something we want to invest in um, long-term, because you can kind of tell. Um, metrics offer something, but not as much as um, going on gut and, and how do you feel like you could work with this person and help them and be a good musical partner. Totally. So if you're an artist and you have multiple deals in the table, and I've definitely, you know, hung out with managers who are kind of going through that where, you know, they're getting attacked, you know, attacked by labels from every direction. Two part question. One is how, how does the artist make the best decision for the home for them? And then if you're a manager navigating that, is there some, like, what's the best way to be respectful and to not like, you know, be too cocky or to piss anyone off? Like, what's the best way to kind of navigate that situation when everyone's coming after you? I'll handle the... I'll, let's talk about the manager part of it first. I mean, most of our, we're a small knit tight community, right? Right. So right. while I, while I might be um, competing against Allison at Big Machine or Taylor and Jim at Sony or Chris Lacey and her squad over there at Warner, j just a small sample of who ever worked we're all close. We all know each other. We all know how this works. Um, same goes for managers. And I think because we are a small knit community, we all want the best for every artist, therefore every manager. Cause I feel like if someone wins, we all win as a genre. That doesn't mean you don't get down and dirty and try to get whatever you can. Um, so, so it becomes a little bit tricky for the managers. Um, I think the best way for them to handle that is just pure transparency. And, and you can do that without giving too much information away, but um, you know, like at, at current moment, let's say Stephanie's looking at artist A. Well, the manager of that artist has already called, called back and said, hey, so a couple of these things have been put online now, so I've got interest from this label and this label, and they've already asked for what's now Zoom calls to be introduced to this person, just being transparent. Not, I'm forcing you to put an offer on the table, any of that stuff, but um, there's a way of handling it and, and doing it the, the best way possible for the managers. Um, but I think transparency is helpful and you can do that without being pushy. 
Totally. Does that make sense? So yeah, the, the other part of that is, is the artist. And I think a lot of it has to, uh, you know, the way they handle things is a little bit different. Some of it's according to age and how old they are or how long they've been town. Um, and, or if they have a manager or a publisher helping them sort of navigate how best to, to entertain all that. Um, and it comes in all different ways. We've had several acts that have come in without management um, that have come up through publishing or whatever. And, and then we have some that come in from management so or, or attorneys. So that all varies. Um, it's a little bit more difficult for these artists to navigate it because if you're a young person coming in and you get an offer at 22, and it's a significant amount of money for a lot of these kids at that point that haven't had road experience or haven't even maybe even haven't had, let's say they're graduating from Belmont and haven't had a, a real job, honestly, um, to get offered 200 grand. Let's say that's the amount I'm pulling it up nowhere, but, um, and, and, and a recording deal, that's a, that's a big significant thing. And then to, to sit back and go, no, I'm not sure if I want this right up front. <laughs> Let me, I'm, I'm not sure what to do, but I need to go probably meet with everybody. Um, and then how do they politely decline and say that they're fans of, you know, everybody that they've been around? Because again, we're a small town and, you know, several years later when you're nominated for something, you want the whole community to vote for you for something, you know? Um, it's a little bit difficult, more difficult for them. I said, if they don't have a manager, if they don't have um, a publishing company or a good attorney around them, it's a little more difficult. There's kids getting signed off TikTok, I'm sure they're probably struggling with that a little bit. I mean, it's like, that's the poster dream of the music industry is getting that record deal and it's like how do you turn that down when when a major calls <laughs> sure and it, it is difficult we we had an experience not too long ago where we had an artist that got caught up in a couple it was a it was a label battle and the numbers got significant and it, i feel like i mean i'm i'm, I'm thankful that it, it ended up where it did but it, it could have gone either way and i'm sure this artist would have been very well supported in, in either place um but i think in that particular case it came down to um who had that artist had a relationship with longer and and what kind of um things had transpired before that um had you been out to see shows have you had uh, you know more in-depth conversations about certain things um what we do does it line up with what that artist wants to accomplish um not just sticking them inside a, a hub and a wheel that just turns like this. And it's a, you know, some sort of, for lack of a better word, machine that, that kind of pumps out and this is what we do. This is how we do it. And, you know, I think we like to cater individually to each artist. So everybody's different now in the way that they're breaking the way they're doing things. And I think, um, sometimes that's scary for an artist. Sometimes that's very much what they want to hear. So, it kind of depends and I think when you're really young it's it's a little harder to navigate that too so you just have to feel that that gut check too do I trust this person are they going to be there with me when it gets really tough um, as well as all the successes because we know it takes a while to have those successes um, you just have to make sure that you feel really good about that I guess Hey everyone, thanks for listening and hope you're enjoying the show. Some of you may know that I run an industry newsletter called the Nashville Briefing. Really takes you to the front row of everything happening in our industry. And if you wanna learn more about it, you can go to nashvillebriefing.com to subscribe. Also, if you're enjoying this show and specifically this episode, please feel free to give us a five-star review on your podcast listening platform. Thanks so much, now back to the show. Absolutely. Okay, so let's go back. So you're from Utah originally, and did did you grow up listening to music and and loving music? I did. Uh, my parents both uh, both loved music. My dad was a little bit more nostalgic. Um, Beach Boys. He did dabble a little bit. I think he got more into country music the more I I would say high school ish. My mom was already top forty, um, but she listened to anything neither one of them are really musically inclined. I think my mom took piano lessons, but uh, interestingly enough, my cousins are the girls from Shadaisy. Do you recall that? Yeah, yeah. So, so when Kristen and Kelsey and Cassidy moved to Nashville, um, Kristen and I were 
really close and we talked often about what she was doing, what she was experiencing. Um, the songwriter, she was around, you know, all what was happening, which of course just, I was over the moon about it. And I found myself going out to media play on Tuesdays to go get, you know, the, the new releases that were coming out. And it might be like one cassette of the ranch that they had in this one particular store in West Valley. <laughs> you had to go wait in line for, um, I was that girl. I liked that stuff. I don't know that I really would say that that's something that I just felt like was my life passion. I just knew how interested I was in what she was experiencing. Um, and it really wasn't until I was married a couple of years and in my starter marriage, he decided he wanted to move either to Iowa or to Nashville to go to dental school at Harry and like be, go to school there. And they'd already moved. So I was like, well, if we're going to do this and I'm going to leave my family, I want to do it where at least no other people. So we ended up buying, I, I took my first trip out to Nashville. And I remember that weekend, I think Kristen and Kelsey and Cassidy signed their record deal. They were literally, it, it was, I could not have planned it better, but they signed their record deal. They um, had been in the studio recording with Dan Huff. I met Carolyn Don Johnson and Dan Huff and Connie Harrington and, just at a massive amount of people. Um, Steve Mandel, Phil Vassar, all these people when I came out that first weekend and, and none of them at that point had really had anything happening. I think Connie might've had some success in the um, Christian world, but this was all sort of new for all of them. That, that was that group of people that all kind of came up together, but just to meet all those people up front, Randy Goodman, um, Shelby Kennedy, it's just so funny looking back on it now. So of course my experience coming to Nashville for the first week was like, oh my God, we, why wouldn't we move there? I mean, this is, that was so much fun. That, that, it happens to everybody that way, right? So- And you were in healthcare I, at the time, right? I was in healthcare, you're right. I was in healthcare and I thought, well, there's a large mecca of healthcare and I'll figure out something. Um, so we ended up moving out. Uh, and, and actually next door to Kristen, Kelsey and Cassidy, which was a huge blessing. And although I think it might've been more helpful for them because they were gone a whole lot once we moved. And so we were able to keep tabs on their house and everything that was going on while they were gone. But, um, of course I watched and experienced so much with them and I thought, well, I don't want to do this healthcare thing. I want to do that. And I thought, this is so much fun. Like, how do I manage to make that happen? And, and found out real quick that in, while we're a tight knit group in the music community, um, if you don't come up through Belmont or MTSU or some of those places where they do internships, Vanderbilt even, it's really not easy to break into the music business. Um, and I remember saying, I'm just going to pay as much off as I possibly can. And I'm going to figure out how to make this work. And I interviewed with Clarence Spaulding and Marianne McCready and they're like, you're overqualified for everything. And yet you have no music business experience. So we can't hire you. And the way that I actually ended up getting a job, my first job was for Pat Quigley at Capitol as the executive assistant. But I happened to just kind of say after my last interview, I'm like, I'm not doing this anymore. It's too disappointing. Um, I read in the paper back when the, you know, the ads or whatever were in the paper and it said that it was uh, a job, an executive assistant for the CEO and president or whatever of a major recording label. Didn't even say who it was for. And I thought, this is bullshit. <laughs> There's no there is no way that that's that way this works. I thought, what the hell? And um, I, you know, went ahead and applied. I had to go to, uh, I think it was Ronstadt at the time and, and do a type test and all these things, which of course we don't do for anybody that we hire. I don't think, but, uh, and I went in and interviewed and I think honestly, the reason I got the job is because he wanted someone that had never been in the music business before. I was like, yes. And so I ended up not having to take a huge decrease in pay. And it, I kind of felt like it was my first entrance into the music business, but I got to see all the different departments, how everything worked um, right from the very beginning. And that's sort of where I set my sights on, oh, I really like this department. Cause it, to refer back to when Kristen was talking to me about the writers like Mike Reed and um, Rob Galbraith and all these things that she'd experienced. I was like, I want to do that part. How do you do that part? Um, and it just so happened, Pat came in one day and said, I think I'm getting let go. And the guy, Mike Dungan, who's coming in, has an assistant, so you need to find another job. 
And I thought, oh shit, I've only been here for like two years. This is not how this works. <laughs> but I called my good friend Haley, who had left a couple months before, and she said, I think we have a job opening up in AR. Do you want to come over and interview? And I'm like, yeah, I'll come over and talk. And so it was it was Gary Harrison and Carson Chamberlain and Keith Stegall at, at the time. And I was lucky enough to get the job. And within three weeks, I think they put me over toward more of the production side of it. And I was in the studio a whole lot more. And then they hired Brian right after I did. So right, I got hired. Holy cow. Okay, wait. So you're working as Pat's assistant. And then mm -hmm. is that, is what you're experiencing there, is that training you, even if it's peripherally, to, to go into A&R? Like, like what, are, what kinds of things were you, were you doing for him? Uh, you know, he was sort of an outsider in the music business, or at least in the country music space, I should say. He um, he was tied with Garth Brooks, and he had done a lot of great marketing initiatives with Garth. And so I got to see a lot of that because he sort of stayed very focused on a lot of that where he was at. But he, we were also in the process of making Keith Urban's first project, um, Pass the Ranch, so his solo project. And I would see him you know, put ads in music rows saying, bring all songs to me. So I would hear and see these publishers walking in and playing music for Pat and going, ah, that's what, that, this is the best job. Like right here, what he's doing, not these spreadsheets and these pamphlets and the graphs. And I, I don't want to, I just want to do that part. How do I do that part? So yes, it did. It did help me a lot for sure. And were, were you forming opinions then? Like when songs were being played, could you hear them? Or were you going like, oh, that's a hit. That's trash. Get that out of here. Like, like, and were you like mad at what was getting cut and you were like, I could do this better? Like, like, did you have a feeling then that you were like, I would be a great A&R person? I, I didn't. I just knew what I liked and what I didn't like. And I think I was just trying to absorb all of it. I feel like throughout my career, it, it, I've been just more of an observer of each different person I've worked with, be it David Conrad or Mark Wright or Keith Stegall. Um, just in the way that they've done things, the way they listen to songs, the way that they put projects together, the way they sign artists, the way they help artists. Um, I feel like I've been more of a, an observer of what they did and things that I felt like I would do differently. And then I've done them differently, but I, I don't know that I was, I don't know that I would have ever thought I would be talking to you today like this about my job, my dream job, which I love. So I, I don't know that, that that was in my head at the time. I just think I was so happy to be in the music business and not working in healthcare <laughs> at the time. And the irony of course, is that Nashville started out as a healthcare town and the Opry was, was, uh, <laughs> was made to sell more healthcare basically. <laughs> right. so, give, or, so. give or take. So, okay. So, so you go upstairs and you interview in the A&R office and yeah. And you and you get the gig, and then and then what what happens next? How do you how do you start A and R? Well, I, like I said, I, I sort of quickly went into the production world. So I was really helping Keith in the studio. I was a production coordinator, so I watched from the ground up how he put projects together, from a budget to hiring the musicians and handling. And and I still have great relationships with the musicians that we that started back then and and because of that but I kind of saw all of it all the way from the very beginning to the song selections and the meetings I set up and the people that came in and pitched and how that worked to how it got recorded in the studio and created in the studio um, and a lot of those early records like I remember doing the drive record with Alan Jackson and where were you when the world stopped turning and he had played that, I guess he'd woken up the night before and, and played it all for the musicians while, and, and whoever was in the control room and said, you know, should we cut this next? This, and, and it ended up being like a song that they, he played on the award show, I think like three or four days later. Um, those experience led to me being, of course, more interested and I thought, well, again, this is a lot of busy work and administration and budgets and numbers and invoices and, it gave me a really good um, base of all the facets of A&R and, and everything that comes out of it. But I also just wasn't dabbling enough in the creative space. Um, so as we merged with different labels, I mean, I started at Mercury and then we merged with MCA. And at that point, David Conrad became our boss. And 
uh, Mark Wright and Clay Bradley and Brian were all sort of more in the creative space. Um, and then we merged with DreamWorks and then James Stroud came in and Allison Jones. And at that point, James actually looked at everybody in the department and said, hey, all of you need to be creative. I don't care what your role is. I need you to be, you know, feet on the street, take meetings with people. And I was like, this is my moment. <laughs> I've, I've got to do this now. So I would cold call people. And I think Jeff Skaggs actually over at Creative Nation was one of the first people I called. And I was like, you're a catalog manager over at DreamWorks. Can you come play me some songs? Like, what do you have? And um, gosh, Brandy Clark at the time, I mean, she was part of a pitch group that played came in and played their own songs for, for, and I don't know that anybody else took meetings like that, but I was like, I mean, y'all come and gather in my kind of tiny little closet and we'll all sit and listen to whatever those songs are. Um, it was around that time that Casey sort of came into to play. Maybe it was just me putting it out there in the universe that I wanted to get more and more creative. And then when we, uh, Mike came over to work for Universal prior to us merging with Capital. And that's when I had breakfast with Mike and he just said, I think that we need to move you to a full creative position instead of having you balance both of these roles. And I was like, yes, that is what we should do. That would be awesome. So that's sort of how the, the cliff notes of how I got to this point. And when, and when you're meeting with Brandy Clark and you know that whole crew, did they mm -hmm. have a lot of buzz already? Were they, stoked to be in universe in you know in your office like was that huge for them like like what, what were those early meetings with those writers like i mean i honestly i I'm, i don't know that would be a question you'd have to ask her i don't know she didn't really have she definitely i don't think she had that much buzz going on uh at that point no there was a bunch of little writers that that came in to meet with me that i don't think did um in fact i, I mean i remember uh Shane McAnally's um, small CD of songs that he'd recorded or like written while he was out in LA in that time that he'd left from being an artist and went to LA and then came back. And um, I think she'd started writing with him. Um, you know, she quickly found her way to, to Casey too. But at that time, I mean, they might've been excited to be there. Or they might've just been like, I don't know why we're doing this. Why are we playing for her? And we could be playing for somebody else. <laughs> Um, I just know that I was in that particular group of people that came in every time her songs came on. I was like, Oh my God, I can't wait till we get back around to her again. Cause she's got something that's special. Um, and we just formed a relationship from there and it kind of went on from there. So. Absolutely. Okay. So how do you discover Sam Hunt? You said you walked into a writer's round, you heard him playing. Was he kind of doing that hip hoppy country type thing? Was that coming across in a writer's round? What, how, how's that happen? There was a there was a hang that used to happen in the the sort of back corner of Warner Chapel and it happened like I don't know once a month or every once a quarter I guess and I had heard a couple of his songs in fact one of them Cop Car um, I had heard earlier in the week and I don't think it was even finished and I don't think I was supposed to hear it honestly. Um, not his publisher, but maybe another one of the, the writers on the songs publisher um, brought it in. It's like, you just have to hear this. And I saw that title and I was like, interesting, cop car. It can't be that intriguing. And I, I don't even, I, I honestly don't think, and now that I know it, it, it didn't have a third verse at the time, but I heard the song that day and I remember going into Joe Fisher and saying, oh my God, listen to this song. Like, don't judge the title, just listen to the song. And he was like, wow, that is something awesome. And I, I I was like, it really is. And happened to go to that thing, uh, the writer's round, I think later that week. Um, and one of my uh, friends over there said, oh, I want to introduce you to Sam. And I was like, Sam, she said Sam Hunt. And I was like, oh my God, I heard a couple of his songs earlier this week. That would be great. And we walked around the corner and it, ironically, there happened to be two Sams talking to each other at that, that point. <laughs> She's like, Sam, I want to introduce you to Steph. They both look and I'm like, Sam. And, and she said, Sam Hunt. And then I met the other Sam that was there as well. And he got up and he performed, uh, oh, I have to think of the first song. The second song was Ecstasy, which obviously is pretty different than everything else. And I had mentioned to him, I said, oh my gosh, I heard your song Cop Car earlier this week. And it was pretty badass. Um, and I think we were looking for like David Nail and Keith Urban at the time, or I think Joe was working on some stuff for Keith because we hadn't merged with them yet. And 
<laughs> he's like, oh, you like that? And I could tell at that moment, I was like, maybe I wasn't supposed to hear that song or even say that I knew about this song. Um, and so we kind of talked a little bit and then he performed. And I remember taking my phone and I, I don't know that I'd ever done this before, but I literally hit record and, and put it down next to me. Cause I was like, no one's going to believe this unless they, I, I play it for him. So I, I wanted to make sure that I played it for Joe and for Brian afterwards. And then I, I might've sent a text to Shane McAnally. I said, your boy, Sam Hunt's really great. And I had found out from Ben Vaughn that that's who he was working with in the studio. And he's like, Oh, how did you hear him? And I said, well, he happens to be here. And at that point, Ben Vaughn had said, come over here, Sam, let's have you sit here. And so we were on the couch and I took my first selfie ever with Sam in a dark room and sent it to Shane McAnally. Um, it's funny to look on that now. Uh, it feels like it was yesterday, but it feels like it was a long time ago. And then it sort of took a couple years for us to get it in motion. Um, well, it begs, it, begs, of, it begs the question, how does Keith cut the song? Is, is that what you're going to say? Does it take a couple years for that to happen? Uh, well, I mean, just to get, it took a couple years to get him in the building and signed at that point. It wasn't a, a quick road to getting him signed in the office. I think his music, um, definitely more so than Casey, scared a lot of people um, because it was so progressive at the time. I, I was intrigued and excited about it. And I thought, oh my God, if, if this, if we, if we can push this through, it'll be well worth it. And then it will be, it'll be big. Um, he also dressed differently. So when he came in to talk to people, they weren't really quite sure what to make of, you know, the way he was looking and, you know, I'm sure every department's kind of sizing up like, how do I take him out on radio tour? How do I do this? How do I do that? Um, once we got in the building, I just looked at him and I said, we're not changing one thing about your music, how you're doing it, how you're presenting it. <laughs> we're not changing one thing about your appearance. We'd have another artist that had been um, in there a little bit earlier, um, maybe a year or so before that. And I'd watch kind of him, them kind of, everybody kind of form their opinion about when you go to radio, don't wear this. Or when you go to do this, the perception is this. And I was like, we're not looking back. We're not going to be scared of what this is. We're just going to let it be what it is. Um, which worked out amazingly, actually. Um, but I think that one took a little bit longer. The cop car getting cut, part of that was that Keith, or that Sam wasn't signed to us at the time that Keith cut that song. Um, it might've been a little bit different at that point, but, but Sam didn't have a record deal at the time. And there was a license that was issued um, by one of the publishers. So there was permission granted for Keith to cut the song. My favorite line in that song is, um, is uh, you were on the left, I was on the right. I knew you didn't smoke when, when you asked him for a light, which to me is such a great line because it, 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 like you know that person. Or you, like it gives you such insight in such a simple line, which I feel like is Sam's like mastery thing that he can say so much with so little. It's very, very uh, true on every front from, from the, the first full project to this current project, Southside. He, he's very much a deliberator of lyric and he will, I, I think sometimes even after songs have gone, number one, he's still rewriting the lyrics to the songs. <laughs> Legitimately, it's happening. Uh, you can't let him like, go. We're going to number one, you don't need to rewrite that song anymore. It's done. What's next? <laughs> On Absolutely. Absolute. So I was just watching the Maddie and Tay uh, internet doc docuseries that's on YouTube. Yeah. Most recent episode I was watching and, and you were talking about how when they came in that you were trying to be their champion and that they ended up, you know, showing you a lot and, you know, changed the way that you work with artists, et cetera. What, what do you learn from your artists today or with working like artists like that? What, what do you learn that you end up taking and applying to when you work with other artists? Well, it just really goes to show you they, um, there was a preconceived notion about who they were around town. I think that there was a lot of people that just thought that they were, as they mentioned in the series, that they were sort of a gimmicky act, that, that they were young. Um, I don't know that my opinion of it was that much different. I, I thought they seemed like genuinely sweet humans and, and I liked what I heard. I don't know that I was big into that particular song, Girl in a Country Song. Um, but I remember meeting with them and the, the more I met with them, the more I was like, oh my gosh, they're extremely talented humans and they have a very clear perspective on who they are as artists and what they want to say and who they want to communicate with. Um, I, I feel like if, if nothing else in, in this particular experience, what I learned from them, I had let my guard down enough to, 
I was trying to be like this. They had gone through so much and I know that they were frightened and scared that they were not going to have a real shot. And I was trying to be this like steadfast. I'm, I'm going to take care of you. But, but there were some other things around me that felt like they were sort of falling apart and, and I might not have been handling them the right way. So I was in question of myself, like, am I even giving them good advice? Do I, am I, am I helping them in the right way? Um, but it sort of forced me to, to, to step back a minute and realize I don't know a lot. And I think when you open yourself, I don't know how to say it, maybe not that I don't know a lot, but just that, that there's always more to learn and you don't have to know everything to help someone make good decisions. You just have to sort of pay attention to things and, and that they're, um, the, the signals and the things that they're saying and kind of collectively put them all together to help them in their path. So for me and what I needed to do with them was really more about um, encouragement and, and helping them trust their gut. And it just like pieces sort of fell into place where they seemed very complicated, also very became very channeled and seemed to be effortless to try to get them in the right direction. And it gave me a lot of reassurance. And then I looked back on the project and was like, Oh my gosh, I, felt like professionally I might not have been at my best when they came into the building and because of them I felt like I became a better A&R person because it wasn't just about um, putting them together with people that made sense um, either in the writer room or even the production part of it but but just really trusting them and their gut and really hashing out the things that they wanted to say. Um, so I learned a lot from them. You learn different things from each artist that you work with. Sometimes you just need to get out of the way and let them do their thing. Cause a lot of them have such a clear vision. Um, others, I think sometimes you have to help them kind of, they, they might give you a, an array of all the things they want to accomplish. And you have to sort of chip away at what is the most important. How do I accomplish one versus the next versus the, you know, step by step. It's still them doing all of the work. You just have to kind of help guide them and channel them and keep them on the right track. Help them focus, put the blinders on and, and, and go. <laughs> yeah, well, cause creatives can be like here one moment and here one moment and here one moment. They just need someone to kind of harness all of that and go, okay, this kind of is contradictive of this. Do you really want that to be the message that you're giving out? Yeah. So it's different from, for every artist that you work with. Totally. And, and do you worry like keeping, you know, when, when they go in a different direction, you know, keeping the brand consistent, someone like Keith Urban seems to like reinvent the model every time and it always works amazing for him. And then other artists struggle, like why does someone like Keith Urban kind of get to play that game where he just, every time he can make up, you know, make up the wheel on every record? Well, cause he's crazy talented and has been from the very beginning. And when you have that much success, even if, even if there was a moment, which I don't think he's had a moment where he's like, <laughs> but you get a pass. So uh, he, I appreciate his ability to continue to change uh, this many years in the game. And, and, and I don't think we would ever stop that from him. I think it's important to let him continue to do things that way. I, I think each artist wants each time they go in to create any project or in a different phase or stage of their career, their life they want to show some growth and some expansion some of them stay a little bit more within the parameters of where they started and kind of push themselves and it expands a little bit some of them get real expansive and change like Casey from one to the next you know as far as sonically where she's gone um, and I think it's just sort of how they set the precedence for the way the fan or the community embraces what they do and if it's acceptable if you if you give that to them up front they're going to expect um to make a hard left or a hard right and they'll follow you around it. Others, you know, if they do it too late in their career, I think sometimes they get a little bit more criticism for it, so to speak. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Before I let you run, I have to ask, I read somewhere that you once made out with Willie Nelson. How does, <laughs> how does that happen? <laughs> well, that is the story that I came up with. I don't think that he actually would say it was that way. Um, we were working on a project with the amazing Fred Foster. He was producing an act on Lost Highway, or an album for us, and it was Willie and Merle and Ray Price. And, you know, back then there wasn't like the signatures on budgets that are automatic now and you send through. And Fred was in tracking over in Berry Hill, and 
I said, well, I'll come over today and snag everybody's signature on this budget because they all had to bless it and sign it. And he's like, yeah, that'd be great. Everybody's here today in the studio. It's a great time to just snag everybody. Well, as I was leaving, I ran into Luke and I said, hey, I'm going to run over real quick and, you know, meet with Fred and, and everybody that's in the studio and get this budget signed. And Link, Luke leaned over he's, and kissed me. He goes, give that to Willie. <laughs> I was like, do you know me? I am not going to be, in the, I will be in and out like a quiet little mouse and I'll walk out the door. Um, and I always say, I'm not sure if it was the secondhand smoke that came going <laughs> out of the door, but I walked in and I was talking to Fred and Fred's like, oh, let's go in and we'll, you know, <laughs> have everybody sign while he's in the vocal booth and blah, blah, blah. And I introduced myself and hand him a sheet of paper and whatever. And he takes it from me kind of, and I, I just leaned over and kissed him on the cheek. And I remember Willie looked at me and I was like, that's actually from Luke Lewis. He said, if I hold on to you, you would appreciate it. <laughs> he laughed and he went ahead and signed it. And I remember turning back around and I was talking to Fred and, and then I think Ray signed and we, we, you know, we walked back in and Merle, by this time we made him way back into the control room and I got ready to leave and he pulled me over and he gave me a kiss on the cheek and he said, please give that back to Luke Lewis for me. And I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> Not expecting that. I walked back outside and I remember I had had um, Luke's assistant in the car with me because we were going to go grab lunch after. And I just said, oh my God, I think I just made out with Millie Nelson. He, he kissed me. I kissed him, potentially make out with a legend. I'm going with that story. I'm taking that story. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I No, that's going to the grave. Absolutely. <laughs> Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time. This this was so fun. What thank any you. any universal projects that we should be on the lookout for that that are gonna be unbelievable? I don't even know if there's anything that can be announced or Anything we should be able to look out for in the future? We have got, I mean, the one thing that COVID has is, is done is, is given artists a lot of time to write and a lot of time to record. So we have a lot of great stuff coming up. Maddie and Tay are about to come out with a Christmas project. Uh, Carrie has one as well that's fantastic Christmas project. Uh, we have signed four or five new acts in during COVID, which is crazy because typically we don't even do two a year and we've now signed five. Um, there's a duo called You Boys that I think they're fun and, and progressive and we're signing them in conjunction with Republic. It's going to be a blast to work. I'm very familiar with them. They're with Sony ATV, right? Yep. Yes. I, I, Dane over there played me some demos early on and I thought they were hilarious and awesome and I can't wait for them well, to that's come out. That's pretty fun to see where that falls and how that all goes. Um, and it'll be a, a huge, uh, again, it'll be a learning experience and learning curve. Um, we, Dylan James, who was off of Idol last season. Uh, we have Parker McCollum, which I'm super fired up about and I think that's going to be fun for everyone to listen to a full project on him. And, you know, we have Mickey Guyton coming out with a, a project and gosh, a bunch of new kids that, that I think people are going to be really surprised and excited to hear. So we've got all kinds of great stuff. Reba's going to be back in the studio making new music. We, Who we is? Reba. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Is, yeah we got it all. It's fun right now. Is there, you know, working so closely with the artists, do you get a sense of the morale if artists are like inspired now? Are they discouraged? Do you have to be like, hold on, get through this. We're going to get back on the road again. I promise. Like how, how's the morale been during COVID? I think, I think that it goes in ebb and flow. I think uh, it's all, I feel like the songwriting and the quality of, of, of songs and what's being recorded has gone up because they've been able to take the time to actually invest in it. Whereas sometimes when they're so busy, it's like riding on the road or, or not really giving it as much thought and, and sometimes overthinking. But I think that part of it, that side of it's good. I know that they're all ready to get back out and play. Maddie and Tay did a show with Adam Hambrick um, last night at drive-in kind of thing. And Maddie called me this morning giggly and excited. She's like, that's the funnest that the most fun I've had in forever and I, I cannot wait. And I realized how much I miss being on the road. Um, so I think it goes in ebb and flow. I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of, of heaviness when you think about how many people they employ and being out on the road and not being able to take care of all those people and how many people are not, 
you know, are unemployed or having to find other employment right now because of it. So I think there's some heaviness that goes with it. I think they're all excited about it. Um, we're just trying to keep them occupied. They're definitely keeping us crazy busy. <laughs> so, but I think it goes in MFL. I'm sure there's a lot of it going back and forth to what they wish they were doing and what they can't do and the excitement of getting back out there and doing it again. Absolutely. Well, I can't wait for like, you know, two, three years from now, whenever it is, and we're going to be hearing songs and people are going to say, I wrote that song during quarantine and I'm sure it's going to be amazing music. <laughs> I think so too. I think so. I, I, I'm enjoying that part of it. And the fact that I feel like the song qualities are just getting better and better and better. And that's even with having to write over Zoom, which I think is a growing experience where a lot of, especially the older artists, um, they're having to have, a, you know, a huge learning curve with that, being comfortable writing over Zoom. Absolutely. Well, whenever it, I sometimes people will say how they're hating writing over Zoom or they don't want to do it, I just say Taylor Swift wrote her entire album over Zoom. No excuses. Like, <laughs> but it's also she's also part of that younger generation where they're they had technology from the beginning, so it doesn't feel unfamiliar to them. Whereas it's just a little harder when the older you get. I mean, I you know getting older myself, and I'm like, ah, when my nine year old goes, hey, mom, just do this. I'm like, ah, shut up, I got this. <laughs> I'm so cool. So I just think it's hard for the older, you know, the, the artists that have been doing it for a long time that weren't raised in this tech world uh, to, to engage a little bit more. But I'm sure they'll be excited when they can all get back together and write in person. I think we'll all be excited for that, actually. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much again for taking the time. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Absolutely. One of these days, whenever it's safe, we'll, we'll have to get together in person. I would love that. Travel safe, back, driving, and all the excitement that comes with that. So, Thank you so much. Thank Good you so much. Talk to you soon. Right. Thanks again for tuning in, and thanks again to Stephanie for taking the time to talk with us. Such a fun conversation. Hope we get the chance to do it again soon. The Zach Kuhn Show is mixed by Sam Heyman, and our theme music is by Justin Johnson. If you want more content from us, you can subscribe to our newsletter at NashvilleBriefing.com or you can follow us on socials, everything at Nashville Briefing. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Bye.